Volume 901, Exploring the One-Man Show, for July 21st, 2018. Subscribe to Broadway Bullet at broadwaybullet.com, in iTunes, and now we're on Spotify. So don't miss a single episode. brand new season and to kick it off we're going to be exploring the one-man show what goes into them why to do them first baba brinkman has been making his name doing one-man rap shows about scientific concepts he describes as part rap concert part ted talk and part stand-up he discusses his process of researching and writing these shows while talking about his latest rap guide to consciousness next Moises Berlazario and Stephen Prescott talk about putting together the one-man show, A Brooklyn Boy, featuring Prescott playing over 25 roles. Both have served time in prison and have used theater as a way to escape their pasts, but use this show to illustrate it to help others avoid their mistakes. Robert Galinsky spends most of his time working with prison inmates and pre-release candidates. His dedication to using the arts to help others led to his creation of The Bench, a show following the lives of several people before and after their troubles began. So, sit back and enjoy today's trip. Welcome back. For Season 9 of Broadway Bullet, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we are ready to kick things off. Uh, this is about a month later than I was hoping to get started with the season, but I got everything transferred over to a server that Spotify likes, and so we are now on Spotify. So in addition to iTunes or your favorite podcast host, you can now listen to us through Spotify. So please spread the word about that. We've got a great season coming up. We got that posted on the website, a list of everybody coming up this season, so hopefully you'll check that out. But let's not waste any time getting into exploring the one-man show. On the boards. Science Meets Rap with The Rap Guide to Consciousness by Baba Brinkman, performed by Baba Brinkman. And interviewing right here on our couch, Baba Brinkman. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you? Good. So uh, tell us a little bit about this. Uh, this sounds fascinating uh, that the, what the press release says, uh, you know, this does for science what, you know, Hamilton did for history. So. Yeah. Um, so I um, have done a whole series of these. This is the latest one. Rap Guide to Consciousness is, I guess, best described as sort of one-third rap concert, one-third stand-up comedy, and one-third TED Talk. So it's sort of, uh, you know, it's theatrical, but it brings all these different elements together. And what I'm really doing is surveying the neuroscience of human experience. How does the brain produce our subjectivity, perception? How is it possible to have a visual field or, you know, feelings, emotions, thoughts? What is a thought? You know, this kind of like previously philosophical, head scratchy, like dorm room conversation kind of, kind of stuff about free will and consciousness uh, neuroscience just in the past <laughs> few decades is giving us really interesting insights via like how brain cells are interacting, making this stuff possible. And I love it for theater because I mean, what is a theatrical experience, but an experience in consciousness and like a, mm -hmm. a designed experience in consciousness, everything about it from the lights to the set, to the script, to the performances is really designed to evoke some kind of experiential journey in an audience member. So this is very meta because I'm yeah. doing that while also talking about how that's possible uh, from the perspective of neurobiology and how, you know, we've got these evolved minds that, um, that have parameters that we can learn about. Yeah. Fascinating. So you said this is the fifth incarnation. So how long have you been doing these? 
So I, I wrote the first one in 2009, and that was for uh, Charles Darwin's 200th birthday. So a biologist, I, I was doing rap already uh, about, let's say, unusual subject matter. Um, I did a show about the Canterbury Tales that I was touring with around the UK. It was sort of like a rap version of uh, this sort of 14th century medieval poetry collection. And uh, a biologist saw it, and he said, you know, I love your show, but do you think you could do for Darwin what you did for Chaucer? Mm-hmm. And he was like, can you, you know, could you like summarize the origin of species in rap? And it sounded like a really cool challenge. So I wrote the, the this is where the rap guide title concept came from is this guy, uh, this biologist, Mark Palin had written the rough guide to evolution. There's like a rough guide yeah, series, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so he was like, you should call your show the rap guide and it'll be like a, you know, supplement to the rough guide. And so I did that. And then I was like, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that could have a rap guide. So now I've done like eight of them, uh, consciousness, evolution, human nature, religion, business, wilderness, climate change, uh, and, f- and five of them have now been produced at the Soho Playhouse as like one man hip hop theater shows. Do you just do this in New York or have you toured it around? I've done it. I've done it all around the world. Rap Guide to Evolution had a big Australia tour a couple of years ago. I did. I got to perform at the Sydney Opera House, which is pretty exciting. Um, and yeah, no, I've done that one all over, uh, all over the UK and Australia and Canada. Um, the more recent ones have mostly just had a, like for instance, Rap Guide to Consciousness. I premiered it at the Brighton Fringe Festival in England last summer. And I did like a couple of fringes. I did Edinburgh, mm-hmm. uh, but basically just was like three festivals and then it transferred to the Solo Playhouse. And that's been, that's been the life of most of the recent ones. Religion, climate change were the same, like a couple of festivals and then, and then to an off-Broadway run. Is this something in an audio audience that works for you to like spit a few bars and give an example of... Sure, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, well, uh, one of the tracks in the show is called uh, Good Bayesian, and the idea is that uh, the brain is like a prediction machine, and always we are trying to uh, you know, predict the contents of the near future, and you can think of uh, Bayes' algorithms. I don't know if you've heard of Bayes' theorem. I had to learn about it to do the show, but uh, the idea is that you have like uh, a prior belief in something being true, and then you have new evidence that you take in, and then the evidence revises your beliefs, and there's this equation that sort of comports your beliefs with evidence, and that's how the scientific method works. But that's mm-hmm. also how the brain works in real time, trying to like figure out uh, its environment and the likely next steps that it needs to take. So I wrote a whole song for the show called Good Bayesian that also addresses mm-hmm. the unusualness of me being a sort of suburban middle class white Canadian rap artist that does science in a theater, which people are like, it's what to the what? Like the categories don't seem to fit. Uh, but that I think is part of the power of it because in real time, it sort of like undermines predictions. Mm-hmm. So I'll do my uh, I'll do my good Bayesian rap. So the, the hook goes, uh, let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. So what's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo-controlled science like Richard Feynman? Is it because of my looks or the fact that I talk like I'm mad for books? Either way, in the ecosystem of rap, I'm the platypus, so my patron saint on stage is Reverend Bayes. Just watch me update the predictions in everyone's brains, teaching a crowd about probabilistical statistical science. For instance, if the president's a proven degenerate liar, remember your prior be skeptical whenever we testify and is it always inaccurate no but you discount outliers until outliers turn out to be nice rhymers that's when it's time to update your bayesian priors to protect against bias and unreliable information the antidote is to learn how to think like a bayesian so let me show you how to be a good bayesian change your predictions after taking information in and if you think it'll be less than amazing let's adjust those expectations <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so and then well, and, and for the audience out there, this is audio only. But you missed all his like white guy rap hands. Yeah, exactly. You know? The gestures. <laughs> and the, like, uh, yeah. What what you're seeing is, uh, you know, it's rap, but it's uh, it's sort of rap in a weird context. And then on the screen, you know, there's all lights flashing, like a concert and a big bass line mm. booming. Everyone's nodding their heads. And then on the screen, there's projected visuals. And I work with projection designers to create these shows 
to sort of like make the ideas come to life. So you see this equation that's Bayes' theorem, and then in it, it's like me as the posterior, and then it equals, and then you've got like maybe one of the versions is like, you know, Jay-Z times Vanilla Ice divided by Bill Nye the Science Guy, yeah. or some kind of like, you know, confabulation of cultural forces that then could be like added up to help people conceive of what I'm doing in the context of what came before me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was practically a rap in itself. That's right. <laughs> so do you get like a lot of repeat audience members? Is is this a, uh, I mean, yeah, have, especially since you've done different editions. I'm sure. Wondering. Yeah. A lot of people will come to me and say like, oh, this is the third one we've seen or we've seen all your shows. Uh, the first one was in 2011. Um, so it's been uh, it's been good to sort of like build a build a following in New York, and people are like, whatever you come mm. with next, I'll be we'll be here, which I think is why the Soho Playhouse keeps bringing me back. There, you know, um, Darren Lee Cole is the artistic director there. He was, you know, he he worked on uh, Killer Joe and lots of sort of like iconic off Broadway productions over the years, and he just really likes sort of disruptive, thought provoking theater. So he's, you know, what each one of these, he's like, hey, what are we, what are you coming with next, kind of thing. So yeah, they're great. Well, I love what you've kind of created for yourself because I, I just founded a brand new theater program that's actually kicking off this fall at the University of Providence in Montana. And okay. It's theater and business arts. Hmm. And you know, the idea is what I'm teaching is they have there's like a in addition to all the artistic classes, there's a five course business sequence, you know, that where they learn about entrepreneurship and you know, negotiating with others and creating your own work and making your own opportunities happen. And I really to... encourage them also to sprout around in their different desires because ultimately all your different interests will focus in. And this seems like a this kind of a situation, which is why I, I spend a little time prefacing it. So I'm like what you're, were all you're those trying to different... train a generation of less naive artists. Yeah. We'll be right back to this interview after a brief word from our sponsors. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. Are you looking at majoring in theater for a career as a creative artist? I've created a program at the University of Providence in Montana that is designed to meet your goals. If you want to be an artist, you are an entrepreneur. And our BA in Theater and Business Arts is designed for you to learn essential business skills with classes specifically designed for theater artists. You'll also explore different artistic skills to help you develop your talents. And our productions are very student-driven, with a real focus on students creating their own work, so you know how to do that once you graduate. With a senior creative project of your choice and a business senior project of developing your own five-year business plan for your career, after graduation, you'll know exactly what your next steps are. UP also has some great programs like a four-year graduation guarantee and a student loan repayment assistance program. If you'd like to find out more, click on our sponsor link at broadwaybullet.com. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I recorded this episode. In April of this year, DGF launched its New Voices program, which brought trained teaching artists into fourth-grade classrooms. These artists led the students in the collaborative creation of their own plays, which were then performed for the school by professional actors. It is crucial that young students are given proper access and training in theater to share their stories and learn the power of their own voices. If you'd like to help support DGF in fostering the writers of tomorrow, please visit dgf.org and be sure to follow them on Twitter at dgfound. Now, back to our interview in progress. And to, say, and to say that, you know, because, I mean, when I grew up, when I was going through college, and I'm glad I didn't listen, but, I mean, I do tons of things. I'm an audio engineer, I'm a producer, I'm a songwriter, I'm a playwright, I'm a director, I'm an actor, you know, and I heard nothing but a constant stream of, man, you need to focus, you know, when I was young and in college. and Yeah. But if, if I had, it's all those unique interests that kind of combine to turn me into the type of artist and educator I am. Well, you do need to focus at one yeah. thing on one thing at any given moment, yeah. <laughs> uh, but not in general in your life. Really. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so it sounds like there is, I mean, even if you maybe didn't know about all these individuals, it sounds like there's an inherent interest in some of these subject matters from you beforehand, or was there? Or was this just like, wow, this is a kind of a cool 
<laughs> you know, for me, it was more like I think rap is this incredibly powerful medium for communicating stories and ideas. I want to master it and then figure out what the most important stories and ideas are that people should know about that I can now share with them via this medium. Mm -hmm. So that started when I was a comparative literature student. I don't have any theater training at all. I was a poetry nerd in college and a, and a hip hop head and a, and a sort of rap aficionado. And, um, you know, I saw rap as a way that I could bring to life the stories that I was reading in my English lit courses. I'm like, there's a 600 year old, you know, dead poets work and no one knows about it except they're a medievalist, but it's so funny and so interesting. Rap is the way to bring it back to life. And then once I did that, I was like, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of things that people should know about. So for me, uh, you know, I was already interested in sort of evolution and science and the life of the mind stuff in general. But let's say I had never heard of Bayes' theorem yeah. like over a, a year and a half ago. If you had said, what's Bayes' theorem? I would have just said, I have no idea. It's something to do with prediction, right? Uh, yeah. So, you know, for me, it's been a great process because it's like every couple of years I get to do another crash course that's like mm -hmm. a new master's degree in some subject. <laughs> you know, I had to learn all about climate change a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, I do, I do try to only work on subjects that exist. I think are really important. And Climate people, change doesn't exist. Yeah, that's well, what I learned. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the tricky part. The atmospheric <laughs> science is easy. The psychology is hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the, you know, my tribe, we don't believe in climate change. How do you like pick the lock of that sort of tribalistic response that's currently in power in the federal government? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's your process? Uh, I mean, first of all, how long are these shows? Uh, they, they usually start at the fringe festivals as 60 minute shows. And then once I take them to off Broadway, they go to be about 80 minute shows. Cause so that's a lot of lyrics to write. I mean, just yeah, but, the, 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 what you <laughs> it's not rap yeah. from beginning to end. Yeah. Uh, that's why I describe it as one third stand up yeah. comedy. Cause I do these sort of like, um, set up bits where I'm like, okay, <laughs> let me tell you about this idea from the research. <laughs> and then here's what they found. And that kind of means this. And oh my God, wouldn't that, okay, then let's do a track. And then yeah. that sort of like makes, you know, makes the tracks make sense and set them up. Some actually a couple of the, a couple of the shows that I've done were straight rap from beginning to end. But, um, I find that like, I, I kind of like interacting with the audience and, yeah. and having it be more freewheeling sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm playing with the parameters of what you can do with a one man show. Yeah. Right. One person shows you have options. You could treat it like there is a fourth wall and they're just watching you do your thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but personally, I like to like I, I uh, admire the craft of stand up comedy a lot, even though I don't consider myself a comic. I will like work comedy elements into my shows. And I like sort of asking people what they're thinking or giving getting ideas from them and working them in. And I freestyle in the yeah. show, too. So there's like a whole improvised rap section that I need <laughs> audience input for. Ah. Yeah. But usually it starts with like, I do like six months of research and reading just to get my head around the, you know, the, the breadth of the subject. And also I, I, I build this stuff as what's called peer reviewed rap. Uh, <laughs> the idea being that I am actually like welcoming scientists into the creative process. And I show drafts of my lyrics to experts in the field and get them to come back with like, oh, you might've misrepresented this, or you might yeah. want to add something about that. So the goal is that by the time I step on stage, I can say, this is the scientific consensus that I'm delivering to you. You can disagree with it, yeah. but you should know that that's what it is. You know, so whether that's about climate change or evolution or neuroscience, uh, these are all subjects where the scientific consensus and the popular view of the scientific consensus diverge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. most people think evolution is different than what an evolutionary biologist thinks it is. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with neuroscience and consciousness. Um, so that, I mean, I find those subjects the most interesting because I can assume that whatever people believe as they come into the show, unless they're already an expert, I'm going to be messing with them. I'm going to be like, oh, you didn't think it was like that? But it is. You know? And then they get to go, what? Ah, what does that mean? Well, thanks so much. And just for any of our listeners, there's a big kind of miscommunication. We almost didn't get to talk to you. And I'm so glad we made it work because I, I, uh, this was awesome talking. I, what you do is, is fantastic. You're amazingly talented. Thank you. And uh, I, I'm eager to hear more, from, more of what you do personally. All right. Well, uh Come see the show if you can. We just, uh, actually, I can announce on this podcast exclusively that we just uh, added dates through June as well. So we're okay. extending again, and I, I hope it just keeps going. It's a lot of fun. All right. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, Baba Brinkman. My pleasure. And we're not through with Baba Brinkman this episode. After each of the next interviews, we're going to listen to one of his rap songs taken from other shows of his. So stay tuned for that. 
And there is a lot more to this interview. If you are unaware, at broadwaybullet.com, if you search for this show episode, you can find all of the unedited interviews. If you want to find out more about a particular artist or show that we're, or topic that we're discussing. So go to broadwaybullet.com for the unedited interviews. On the boards. I am sitting here with uh, Moises Belisario and Stephen Prescott, who um, are currently working on a one-man show, A Brooklyn Boy, but also have a lot to share about uh, using art to help people find their voices. Um, I understand both of you have faced some very tough challenges across the light, and you both like to use art to rise above all of that. Yes. As a quick kind of introduction, we're gonna, <laughs> got a lot yeah. to ch- we got a lot to talk about here. Yeah. So... Um, I guess the first thing is tell us a little bit about a Brooklyn Boy and how it came about, and then we'll kind of grow the conversation from there. Well, the Brooklyn Boy right now is a sixty-minute piece, and it's a journey of Stephen Prescott and growing up and finding himself in trouble. That kind of like took his journey and twisted up into a nice old knot. Um, he plays thirty-two characters in this piece. Um, each of the characters are people that he grew up with, his family. Um, the court system, um, the, the, the police officers that come on to his property at one point in the piece. But it's really the journey that he goes through in himself is what this piece is about. So A Brooklyn Boy is really his journey. So we're not trying to represent the whole... I'm going to say it the way I want. I need to say it. The whole black experience. No, we experienced Did you hate that you're kind of expected to always <laughs> represent the entire black experience as, as black artists? I, 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 I sometimes imagine it has to be so frustrating sometimes for minorities that that's what you're just expected to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but um, it, it's so, it's crazy because the uh, show, after I'm done with the show, so many people from different backgrounds have come up to me and find ways that they relate to the show. So... That's the thing I love about art because it could come from such a personal place, but it could also be so universal, you know. And that's what I love so much about it. Yeah. This is only eye opening to white people. Yeah. My (laughs) stories have had to relate to other people's stories for. Because that's all they showed us when we were growing up. Is this is how the white people live? We're like, um, yeah, but we're living too, and we're part of it too. So that's yes, yes. So how did you guys hook up and and get to be working together? Well, well, I came from. uh, There was an alternative to incarceration program. They took in kids between the ages of fourteen and nineteen. And what they did was that they gave paying internships. So they asked, what was it that I love to do? I told them that I love to, always like to act and dance. And they said, oh, we know a great pace for you. So they said, uh, why don't you check out City Kids? I thought City Kids was just like a, a daycare center, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then when I popped up, when I show up, I saw like kids my age and they were like in the basement down there dancing and creating material. And like City Kids, they, they focus on many other other things, like you know, college prep programs and different stuff like that, whatever. But when I came in, uh, Moses and this and another staff member, they came and they interviewed me. And the first thing Moses did as soon as he sat down was, "Okay, why did you get arrested?" And I was. Just, <laughs> yeah, I guess at this point, we should clarify that both of you have spent time in prison, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. so he goes, he goes, "Why did you why did you get arrested?" And I remember. Um, when I was at the program that they told me that they're not allowed to even ask me that. So I was already mm-hmm. on defense mode. I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. And then, um, but then afterwards, he was like, you know, I gave him like a, a story like, oh, yeah, I was at the wrong place, wrong time or whatever. I tried to like, you know, clean it up. He's like, no, I really want to know what you did. Then I shared with him what I did and I told him, you know, the truth, like what went down. And he said, you know what? I still want you here. You know, I still want you to be my intern. And I was like really surprised by that. I was like, wow, I thought I just told you all of that. You still want me here? Because I had nothing to lose. So then I was like, okay. I was there filing papers and stuff like that. I wasn't really working with Mo yet. I was working with the other staff member. Then Mo took me under his wing and said, okay, you're going to be working in my space and filing papers and stuff. And then slowly we built a relationship to the point he became my mentor. And, um, and I told him that I wanted to be a part of this uh, program. I want to dance with these kids and all that stuff. He said, you're already in. Don't worry about it. I was like, oh, dope. So through him being my mentor and like, you know, building a relationship and everything, you know, you, we had a lot of talks. We 
I told him a lot of stories about my background and my life, and he shared his as well. And he said, you want to be an actor, Steven? You know what you should do? You should write a one-man show about your life. And I was like, really? A one-man show? I, I couldn't really process that. Like, how am I going <laughs> to? There's a lot of actors who can't process that. Yeah. So. <laughs> I did not see, like, I didn't see the vision. But this man right here, he's seen the vision from the jump. And, you know, even today, just about, you know, the things that we're experiencing because of this show, we always, we look back and we're like, wow, like, I remember when this, when he told me, like, you know, write a one-man show, and he was telling me all these things that could come about, and this is crazy because you've seen it actually manifest. It's like, yeah, but um, you like to. Well, yeah, I mean, when I first met Steven, he's correct that, you know, he was welcomed into the space, but I also remembered this 16-year-old young man showing up with the drooping pants, the sagging pants, and a baseball cap covering his eyes. And after saying hi, welcome to City Kids, I said, what are you here for? He said, oh, I'm here for an interview. I said, so pick up your pants and take off that hat, bro. You don't go to interview <laughs> looking that this way. So I don't know what you're thinking. You know, I said, you wore, you wore the right clothes. You had some nice slacks on. You have a button shirt. But you can't walk in with a hat, kid. You can't walk in with your pants sagging. So, you know, Unless it's a hat out. like he's sporting right now, which is pretty darn snappy. No, yeah. right, that, like, <laughs> <laughs> if he would have walked in wearing that hat, I would have said, sorry, sir, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> this is a nice hat. So he, he took off the hat and he fixed his pants and he walked in. In the beginning, I couldn't take him on as my intern because I already had four other interns from the same program. Because my goal was to give these young men an opportunity to really be somewhere that somebody wants them there. But I knew that I wanted him there once, once I asked him the true question, what did you do wrong? And he said a little bit of what he did wrong. It automatically hit me in my head, Mo, this man can now share the story that you wanted to share, Mo. Let him be that for us. Let him be the torchbearer of the truth that we went through. So I let him come in. I let him sit down. He did do some filing. But every Saturdays when he was there to make up some hours because he wanted his pay for his internship. <laughs> so he would make up his hours. He would be watching the kids perform and dance. And I said, you know that you can rehearse with them. Like, this program wasn't just for you to be my intern. I wanted you to be a young person here, too. You're just a kid, kid. Like, you're 16 years old. This is for you, too. I know that you're an intern here, but please join them. So he started rehearsing with the young people and learning monologues with them. And I noticed something about him. Wow, this kid can pick up a monologue in 2.3 seconds. Like, mm -hmm. give him something, a cold reading. And he's like, got it. I'm like, no, no, read the paper. No, I already know it. I'm like, wow, okay, so let me see it. And he would be word to word of a monologue. And I'm like, this kid has a lot inside of him, man. This kid can easily become an amazing actor. So part of our lunch meetings that he and I had, I said, look, your one-man show is going to open up doors for you, kid. I'm telling you, you can do this. And the one-man show route is we're men of color. People are not just going to welcome you to Hollywood, man. It's just not yeah. going to happen. Well, at least back then. Yeah. Now, the red carpet is out for the black man. <laughs> They're like, where are you, brothers? We, we, we got a job for you guys. But back then, it wasn't that way, you know, because we, we met about eight years now, right? Or is it like nine, almost nine, nine years? Yeah. Back then, it wasn't that. So I told them, look, you have to create your own way, man. Use the performing arts to create your own way to really get in there. And he showed up, and, and we started writing this, and when the Duke and Duchess saw it, he expected me to write him a play with other actors and characters. <laughs> and I said, no, Stephen, this is a one-man piece. You will play every one of these characters, and you're going to be great at it because these are your people. These are your friends that only you can, can um, give them justice with, with who you are, like, let them live with you on these in these pieces. And he was like, oh, I, I trust you, I trust you. This man here plays 32 characters. He plays a group of his friends from, I'm going to say, six years old until they're about um, 18, 19 years old. And, he, and we really show their progression as they grow up and how they choose the streets as well. And I, I co-wrote this with him and directed it. And I still watch this piece with tears in my eyes because it moves me. It still moves me. It's not something that I'm bored of. I can watch this piece every day, 
a hundred times a day. I mean, it's hard on his voice, but I can watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just enjoy watching this piece, you know, and I'm enjoying now people enjoying this piece and responding so openly. Like he said earlier, it doesn't matter what background these people are. When they see it, they start telling their truth, you know. Yeah, I know what it means. I, I did this and I did this with my, you know, against my parents and I did this dealing with my religion and I did this dealing with bullies and it just covers that spectrum so creatively that, that I sometimes sit down and I say, did we really write this? Or was this pre-written before we were born? Because it's so clear. Yeah. So what is your guys' process as you co-wrote and created this piece? Well, first you told me to start writing down stories for therapeutic reasons. So... I just was just, he just said, just write, just write stories. So I wrote tons of stories, stories that didn't even make it into the piece. Mm-hmm. And um, then we we took like two scenes, we took like two stories and then he was just like, we were just going over it and he was just giving me direct, you know, directing and, and blocking things like that. Then when the whole thing happened with the Duke and Duchess, because we had those two pieces already, already made, we... Um, yeah, we performed the excerpt for the Duke and Duchess. And when a Duke comes up to me and he's like, oh, that was amazing. He would love to, like, what am I, what am I planning on doing with this piece? I, we had this thing when we, when we said, if anyone asks us about the piece, we would just tell them that we have a 90 minute, a 90 minute show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was, what is it? We were sending the emperor his new, his new clothes, yeah. basically. We all are as artists. Yeah. Nothing beats a motivation like a deadline. Do you have this? Exactly yep. Exactly right. Can you do this? Yep. You hit it right on the door. The minute somebody says, I want to see what you have, you go, you got it. And in two days, it shows up. Yeah. So, yeah. so then when he said that, then like the reporters caught it and everything. And then the world just like waiting for this 90-minute piece that we didn't even have yet. You know? So he connected us to BAFTA. And BAFTA... Wanted to set up like a, a whole thing for us. What's BAFTA for people who don't know the acronym? British Film Academy. Okay, it's like they were, um, the the Royals were um, version of the Oscars. Yeah, British Academy British, for yeah. Film and Television. Yes. Yeah, and um, so they they were planning this big thing to do for us to, for them to see the show and stuff like that. So then we only had about like four weeks, honestly, <laughs> to create, and we only had two monologue sets. So I sat down with Moses and. He was just, we were just trying to like figure out like the characters and everything. And Moses was like, yeah, you know, we took pictures of different characters. Mm-hmm. We, we sat down. I remember I was over by his house and we were in the kitchen and I'm just like falling asleep. He's just there just like, <laughs> you know, typing and stuff like that. Like it was crazy. And like, honestly, like we put a lot of like tears and, and, and sweat into that whole four, four weeks before he even came because then we had to get dancers. Mm-hmm. This is the time where we had we had four dancers, four singers. We just got people to audition. Everyone that auditioned got picked. Like there wasn't a lot of people. There wasn't a lot of people who came. Whoever came was like, "Yeah, you're, you're in, in. You're, you're in. in." But and, the weirdest thing was, we were talking about music, and I said, "It'll be so cool if we get a, if we had a violinist." But we didn't have money to pay anybody. So then, after rehearsal, I went down into the train station, and I saw this African American young guy playing the violin. And I walked up to him and I said, yo, brother, what's your name? He said, oh, my name is Edward. I said, um, do you play the violin all the time down here on the train? He said, well, no, I'm in school as well. I said, look, I- I'm directing and I've written, written this piece called Brooklyn Boy. I would love for you to be a part of this show. Can you be a part of it? He said, yeah, I'll be more than happy to go. I said, meet me at this address. I gave him the address. He showed up. Mm-hmm. And when he showed up, he added this refined feel to the piece that was so beautiful. I'm right now, we're not dealing with a violinist, but what he did to the piece was such a, just a pole feeling of like, this kid talking about the heart not life of streets, and then this amazing violinist guiding people. Well, it's been wonderful talking. Um, Moises Belisario. Thank you. And Stephen Prescott. Yes, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation, wish you guys the best of luck. Thank Thank you, thank you for having us, yeah. Listening room. Now, as promised, here is Religion Evolves from Baba Brinkman's show, A Rap Guide to Religion. 
Religion evolves. You can watch it. It evolves. I spent my whole life perplexed by religiousness. Front doorstep debating with Jehovah's Witnesses. I was a teenaged empirical thinker, a spiritual seeker, obsessed with rap. I considered it lyrical research. This was the medium that I could think and speak in. Flipping ridiculous figures of speech over beats like every weekend. My CD collection became my personal gospel. I was an apostle, like Thomas, wondering was it impossible to rock shows and still be thoughtful? So paradoxical, speaking in tongues all over the drums like Pentecostals. I figured if I could master the craft, I could start a new religion devoid of superstition. A descendant of secular humanism with the ecstatic rituals of ancient mystical shamanistical visions, except based on philosophical naturalism, which means no counterfactual claims, no supernatural, nothing but reason and evidence. Troops salute the rational. In my religion, the truth is sacred, and science adjudicates it, and meditation is cool if you want to find your Buddha nature. But human nature exists too, and it's not rude to face it. Enlightenment comes when we understand how evolution shapes it. It's a demon-haunted world. You can take it from Carl Sagan, whether Christian or pagan. Religion evolves, whether it benefits one of us or whether it benefits all. Adaptive problems are gonna get solved. Religion evolves. The bigger the scale of a society, the bigger the gods. People get along when someone's watching them. Religion evolves. We'll send a rocket on a man mission to Mars if the holy wars don't kill us first. Let's hope religion evolves. I'll turn my religion upon itself like an Ouroboros. Religion evolves. It adapts. Ask a biologist, a cognitive psychologist, a sociologist, an anthropologist, a behavioral ecologist. Religion is all of this. Two or three new religions get founded a day. They're just like rap artists. Most of them won't be around in a decade. They all compete for space and followers and human devotion. Religion evolves because many are called but few are chosen. Approximately 10,000 religions are currently active. So forgive me if I don't ask which exact version you practice. Chances are flip of a coin is probably Abrahamic. Half the planet is either Christian or Jewish or Islamic. We can track the demographics, study the epidemiology, but human beings have been religious since before the Holocene 12,000 years ago. Agricultural revolution prior to that. Most of our significant evolution, small-scale societies surviving in the Pleistocene had a strong incentive to unite like a hive of bees. Religion is a device for binding people tribally, and if you're in my tribal, then I'll die for you, you'll die for me. It's a demon haunted world. You can take it from Carl Sagan, whether Christian or pagan. Religion evolves, whether it benefits one of us or whether it benefits all. Adaptive problems are gonna get solved. Religion evolves. The bigger the scale of a society, the bigger the gods. People get along when someone's watching them. Religion evolves. We'll send a rocket on a man mission to Mars. If the holy wars don't kill us first, let's hope religion evolves. Religion is an evolved mental technology, definitely. But did it evolve culturally, or did it evolve genetically? Or is it a byproduct of several other mental capacities that evolved independently and separately function adaptively like agency detection systems triggered hyperactively, or theory of mind, which means reading people tactically like, I know what you're thinking, who the hell is Bubba Brinkman? Is he some kind of cross between a prof and juvenile delinquent? Yeah, that's right, that's what I am. Now let's get back to the question at hand. I have a conscious mind and I'll try to predict your thoughts as best I can And I predict you've never considered what religion is adapted for Or if you have, then I predict you've never heard it rap before So how do I know it's adaptive? I mean, it could be random drift It could be a byproduct of something else that has adaptiveness Like your belly button, which is amazing But it's not really for navel gazing Nah, it's a side effect of your umbilical cord So religion might be a viral meme that's parasitic Or it might be an adaptation for maximizing descendants It might benefit individuals, or it might benefit whole groups, or it might be the invention of cynical priests trying to control you, or it might be a belly button byproduct or adaptive in the past and maladaptive in the present. Those are good questions to ask, and science can find the answers, and the answers are non-obvious, except for the answer to where religion doesn't come from. Divine Providence. Religion Evolves from Baba Brinkman. You can find tons and tons of his material on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever else you get your digital music. (laughs) 
On the boards. All right, I am here with Robert Galinsky, who definitely is busy, busy, busy with a lot of things. Um, he works with prisoners in prison on art. He works with people coming out of prison who want to stay out of prison and stay involved in art. Uh, he's got his own uh, one-man show that is going here and soon to L.A. He, um, he's involved with another project that where you decide to make a completely separate interview of the National Monologue project. And I'll let him say what those specific names of each of those entities are. How are you doing? Great to be here, Michael. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess uh, really quick, what are all these various things we do? And then we'll kind of go in depth into uh, each of them a little bit. Sure. Actually, I'm narrowing things down as wide as they still are. I'm narrowing them down. And the main projects are pretty much the work I do with um, prisoners and ex-prisoners. And then the bench, the one-man show, the bench, a homeless love story. And the bench is where I've dove, dove in vertically now, and, and uh, we opened in October at the Cherry Lane Theater off-Broadway, and then in January we transferred the show to the East Village Playhouse, mm-hmm. and it's been running weekly since then. All right. So I, I'm really, I actually, and at the moment I'm spaced out of my professor's name, but he's pretty involved in prison in theater and doing devised work theater in uh-huh. prisons. And hopefully I'll remember his name over the course of the interview. But it, it is a fascinating topic. So, And you don't just do theater, but you do like art and literature. Yeah, and, I do literacy. Yeah. I work with uh, an organization called Literacy for Incarcerated Teens. Through them, they're actually an amazing bunch of um, retired librarians. <laughs> and librarians are pretty tough people. They don't look like it. But I've learned very quickly that you don't question the librarians. They are, they are, they're rock solid. So um, I go to Rikers Island Jail twice a week. Um, and I work with young men who are incarcerated and from very, very different reasons, all of them, a mixed bag, and do everything from write poetry, write plays, read plays. I just brought in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, mm-hmm. because everybody, the majority of the guys that are in jail are entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurs. <laughs> they, you know, they bootstrap yeah. like the entrepreneurs do. The problem is that their mentorship hasn't been the best, so they're sometimes outside the lines of the, of the law. Um, That's good. They're not prisoners. They're entrepreneurs. They are. For mentorship. Exactly. Yeah. They're entrepreneurs. <laughs> and so when I bring in Glengarry Glenn Ross and they start to get what's going on there, they love it because it's guys hustling the deal, mm. hustling leads. Um, and then I work with another organization called GOSO, Getting Out, Staying Out, which is when they're out, a guy named Mark Goldsmith um, runs this program and it's professional training, job training, but I do an arts component there too. So I guess you know, this is two questions, but what are your kind of the biggest things that bring you joy out of doing this? And what are the biggest things that bring you challenges and frustrations? The joy is a number of things. One, I just, it's just beautiful to connect with people who are in need. One of the wonderful things that happens in the jails is when I walk into a new group, they're like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I here? I mean, you must be getting paid. Yeah, I'm getting paid a little bit. Sometimes I volunteer. Uh, well, what, what, but what do you mean, why am I here? And they're like, well, no one cares about us. What, why would you be here? And I'm, so the joy is loving other people, showing them that there's love in the world, that even if you don't know them, there's, the, the people care about each other. These are, and again, most of, the, my, most of my clients mm-hmm. that are in, in jails or prisons are people who have not had love and nurturing. And when they find somebody that does, it just blows them away. So when I leave and they say, are you coming back? Or when are you coming back? That's a joyful moment for me because I know that they want more of whatever it is that we're doing. Um, the other part of the joy is that I imagine that every time I'm walking through the hell hole that is Rikers Island Jail, I'm imagining there's a CEO or a CFO or a chairman of a board on a yacht somewhere slowly losing his breath or her breath because there's somebody in the jail system <laughs> working to make the, pe- the very people that they tromp on every day um, there's somebody like me going in, and there's many of us going in and giving that love and paying attention to people and building them up. The very people that these chairmen and CEOs and board of directors do not give a poop about. I don't know if we can swear. <laughs> yeah, you can swear. Like, they don't give a crap about them. <laughs> um, so that's part of the joy, too, because I know that I, hopefully I'm putting a dent in this, this ugly, unbalanced system. Um, the challenges, you said? Yeah, or, yeah. The, the... Challenges, well, frustrations. Yeah, challenges and frustrations is one. Like, this, this jail has 10,000 prisoners. 
It's it's oh, wow. in an island of Rikers Island. If you don't know it, is insane. Um, the, the history it used to be an island where a man named Riker, Mr. Riker, would catch quote unquote fugitive slaves and bring them there and then sell them. And I did back. not know yeah. that about Rikers. Island. So Rikers has a history of dismal energy from from the beginning. Um, so that's part of the challenge. The energy in there is so down. Uh, there's great people in there in terms of. Um, Officers and COs. There's some wonderful people with big hearts in there. There's some terrible people in there as well that run the place. But it's I, I don't want to paint this to be an, a, a bad people problem only. Yeah. Um, so the challenge is also things like they don't have computers running from one um, building to another. There's ten different buildings yeah. on the island. They have their own bus system. You know, it's incredible. Um, so you know, there's more people in Rikers than a lot of our towns in Montana. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's the like third largest imagine. jail in the world. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, and there's like, they fax things to each other. So if you're, if one of the biggest frustrations, is you'll show up at the door, the doorstep, and they'll look at their list of who's approved to come in today, and you're not on that list. It's not like they email or text or call somebody. They fax so it takes sometimes three hours to get in. There have been times where I've sat and waited, and they're like two hours into it, like, you should just go. You should just go home. I'm like, no, I didn't come out here. It took me an hour and 15 minutes to get out here. I'm not leaving, you know, until I see my guys. So that's part of the challenge. The other is I'm a white man. So walking in there as a white man, I am the white man. <laughs> and there's a challenge to get these guys to, to see me more than that. Like I'm trying to see them more than what I what is framed for me. Um, so that's part of the challenge too. But once I, I, I'll kick a poem. I have a couple of poems that are kind of crazy. So I'll kick a poem that they can relate to. And they're like, oh, this white dude's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's just, it's just hard to fathom that. Yeah. So, and, and, You're more than and, welcome to come in and visit anytime. Yeah. I'm one of the few people who can get you in on the same day and out on the same day. So if you're interested in to volunteer one day just to observe or be a part of it, more than welcome. What's going on on uh, Monday? Monday, it's Prince Spaghetti Day. No. <laughs> uh, we'll talk. I, yeah, let's talk. I have a day on Monday, and that okay. sounds like a very enlightening yeah, it is. Um, experience. It's a beautiful and terrible thing at the same time. It's great. Yeah. So cool. We'll talk about it. And then the bench, yes. which is a separate thing, but it sounds totally. like it's definitely related with experiences you've had on the other front. Yeah. The Bench is a play about uh, four homeless men who are all kind of fixated on, an, on a woman that they all know. They're actually varying degrees of homelessness. One's in a group home, one's in a halfway house, one is two are on the street. Um, and this is about these guys who uh, all have an affection toward the same woman, and one of them is just screwing up their little community. And... That being the, one of the main threads, we then see how they live. We then see that there is a community there, that there's routines and, and connections that they make constantly. Because when I first started walking by these homeless people and hearing them talk, I always felt like they were these little satellite aliens that had no anchor. But they all have an anchor, whether it's a P.O. box, a friend's house, or whatever it is, a bench. So the play takes place on that bench. It's one-person show. It's written for a five-person cast. But I do it as a solo piece, so it's not monologue blackout. It's dialogue, and I switch back and forth. Um, it's been getting a nice response from people. It's been running every week, almost every week since October. What nights do you play? Fridays at 7, okay. once a week, <laughs> at the East Village Playhouse. <laughs> so and you're bringing that to L.A. too, right? We're going to bring that to L.A., probably the bootleg theater in L.A. Um, a very good friend of mine is Roger Genver-Smith who's a very uh, prominent actor and is a killer when it comes to one-person shows. He did the Huey P. Newton story, Rodney King, um, a number of different shows. Spike Lee's produced two of those as specials, on one on Netflix recently. He's my gateway to the bootleg. That's where he does his shows. He premieres them. So I think that's a very cool footprint for me to step into. Um, and so hopefully September we'll be in L.A. doing a few nights a week and then doing a whole bunch of charity, uh, homeless outreach, and homeless organizations and things like that to get the community talking about not just the play, but also about the issues. 
I just remember my professor's yes. names. I'm wondering if you might know him because I'm guessing it might be a smallish world. John Bergman? No. You don't? No. Okay. okay. I know he, he's forged a career doing... Really? Doing... Um, Theater in prisons, and cool. had a whole class on not just prison theater, but like you doing theater with you know challenged groups and and stuff. It is Great. definitely a really interesting area. What? Where was he? Where's he a professor? He, he floats. He, he, he adjuncts a lot of things. He gotcha. was my professor at Holland's University in Virginia. Cool. In the summer, which is a great summer grad program. Uh, it's playwriting, but it's really holistic in its approach to theater. For anybody who's like trying to do grad school, but they can't get you know commit to three years off, sure, you know, to get sure. their MFA. It's a wonderful program just to cool. <laughs> cool. put that out there. So um, building up, how, how did you get into this? I'm guessing this wasn't something you stepped out of college or whatever and said, I'm going to. I have yeah. always been interested in people on the quote unquote margins. Mm-hmm. I mean, even from fifth grade, mm-hmm. uh, when I was a kid, my mom got sick at one point and she was in the hospital for a few weeks. So I had to go to school an hour early just based on our schedule. And I went and they said, you could either sit in the office or you could go down to our special education department and, you know, help out. So I did and it immediately connected. Um, so this was a very early. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So from the beginning, I've always loved, uh, and I wasn't considering myself an artist at all. Not until I was out of college. Actually, I was a troublemaker. That's the kind mm-hmm. of, <laughs> you know, precursor to my being an artist. Um, so yeah, so when I was younger, I got into special education, studied special education in college. Um, only did it in the past five years have I been involved with prison um, population. A friend of mine and a mentor, Jamal Joseph, uh, was doing a high school graduation commencement speech in a prison upstate, mm. and it blew my mind. I thought I knew everything, and then I was like, what? Who do you have to be? to do a high school graduation commencement speech in a prison. That's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. Um, and I know Jamal very well. He did time himself. He runs an incredible theater up in Harlem, which I'll re- reach out to for you at some point, um, <clears throat> called the Impact Repertory Theater. He introduced me to literacy for incarcerated teens. I proposed a, a workshop, and we did it. It was rough and tumble, but it, mm-hmm. the girl, it was a girl's facility. They really loved it. And so since then, I've been developing this thing called Unscripted Leadership, where we're talking about life that hands you a script and doesn't. There really is no script at, at all. Um, so how do you navigate, improvise, and improve the world, improve yourself without a script? Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what, what, um, what it's about. I, mean, I bring in books, I bring in magazines, I bring in plays. Whatever the guys or the, or the young ladies gravitate toward, that's what I start to funnel in. So if it's like a lot of the guys really want to look at Inc. and Fortune magazine, mm-hmm. Uh, again, they're entrepreneurs. They're, they're, they want to make a living. They love making money. So we'll read those things and talk about careers. Um, when I pick plays or I pick screenplays, it's not driving Miss Daisy. It's training day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's things like that. All right. Well, Robert Glinsky, it has been a pleasure talking to you about your one-man show, The Bench, about your projects in and out with prison. I'm really eager to see if I cool. get in for a very enlightening experience on Monday. I am Absolutely. We'll, we'll right now sort out what I need to do with you to get uh, clearance. Sure. And uh, good luck with Michael, all your endeavors. thank you. Great show, and I totally appreciate the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Listening Room. All right, before we wrap up this episode, we got one more Baba Brinkman song. This one is Make It Hot from the Rap Guide to Climate Chaos. Scientists are telling us that we're standing on a precipice We have to convert the global economy and make it emissionless And those emissions are caused by every single one of our jobs Every one of us contributing carbon emissions to the smog For instance, if I write a rhyme Trying to describe climate change and it's hot so it catches on Someone's gonna fly me someplace to perform it And the appeal of that is enormous It's not an option for me to turn down work for global warming Cause I make it hot People say my rhymes are dope I twist words until they're unrecognizable I make it hot Make it easy for sheezy So hot even climate change skeptics will believe me I make it hot Like the temperature it needs to be Before the tea party will believe the IPCC I make it hot I liquefy the Greenland ice sheets Seven meters of sea level rise That'll do nice 
And yeah, humans are adaptable And we can toughen up But that response ignores people who feel like it's already tough enough they make a list of countries that nobody visits as a tourist They have low carbon emissions The richest inflicted this on the poorest We did it by heating our houses And feeding our spouses And flying and driving places And having no patience for power outages The Pope calls it anthropocentric He calls it obnoxious But I got work to do And work takes energy to accomplish And I make it hot I turn up the heat on the crowd You make it hot too though So don't try to be weaseling out I make it hot Like the African sun Like the Paleocene, Eocene Thermal maximum I make it hot Feel that bass when it vibrates Hot like the permafrost Releasing methyl hydrates I make it hot Like a planet with low albedo Like me rocking a trench coat On a beach instead of a speedo Hot with no apologies, but still I'm feeling a lot of grief for the impact my lifestyle has on the planet's ecology. My carbon footprint is bigger than cryptozoologies. I'm talking Loch Ness monstrous, so I'm not at peace because the aggregate effect of every decision I'm making is tragic. But I can't just quit. They say that we're carbon emission addicts, but that's just glib. You want me to live in poverty abject? And if I did, what happens to greenhouse gases on average? If I quit and you don't, it's still hell in a hand. Basket, a traffic jam with no plan of action. Fantastic, this is a classic arms race that we're trapped in. It's ominous, self-interested parties stuck in a tragedy of the commons. The problem is caused by our collective emissions of carbon. But the person who emits is not the person emissions are harming. So it's a failure of the market. Everyone is incentivized to pollute as much as they can get away with and catch a free ride. So it's no surprise to see emissions on the rise when the cost of burning fossil fuel is externalized, it's effectively subsidized, it's paid for by the victims of the eventual climate impacts caused by our emissions and Bill McKibben and The Guardian have been targeting investments like dirty energy is the new tobacco so keep your distance from anybody making a profit off of fossil fuels cool, I'm down with the boycott I'm just boycotting myself too cause I'm making hot I cause a heat wave How about nine degrees hotter than the hottest ones these days? I make it hot, like climate refugees. Picture a hot hundred million displaced Bangladeshis. I make it hot, spit flames, rap metaphors, a five alarm blaze, killing the last redwood forest. I make it hot, I make it six degrees, causing the extinction of 40% of species. Hot. So what are we left with? A speeding train with no brakes, some kind of a death wish, a scientific consensus that we're standing on a precipice, and a population with no idea of how to reduce their emissions. Some people do offset their footprint voluntarily with the milk of human altruism, hope, faith, and charity, but that's not gonna cut it. It's not counterproductive, but we got a global carbon budget and it's globally busted and there are hundreds of gigatons that you would have to offset. You might as well donate your piggy bank to the national debt. I ain't got no spare change to donate to carbon offsetting. I don't even want to calculate my footprint. I find it upsetting. It's like the medieval Catholic church back when it was indulgent selling. If you get a Big Mac and a Diet Coke, your belly is still swelling. But here's what I'm willing. I'm willing to pay a tax. A fee that's calculated against my carbon impacts and globally harmonized to switch incentives around and make sure most of that carbon stays safely under the ground. But I'm not gonna pay it, not unless you all pay it too. That way I can be sure that you'll do what you say you'll do. How about everyone has to pay it? No free riders allowed. No international pact with the US or China left out. You can invest it in green R&D or you can dividend it back to me. But either way, I won't be happy until the day they're carbon taxing me. Cause then I can make it hot without ever feeling a chill. I'm just sick of the guilt trip. Killing my high when I'm feeling a thrill. So I make it hot. I get your emotions aroused. If we can't make those hot, we're not gonna keep the oceans down. So let's make it hot. People, let's turn up the heat on polluters trying to catch a ride on all the rest of us for free. I make it hot on the mic and in my social life when I agitate for my friends to agitate for a carbon price. And that's how you make it hot. Make it hot. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up our first episode of the new season. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more coming up. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. And again, spread the word. 
Tell all your friends to subscribe to Broadway Bullet. It's free. We're on Spotify now, so there's uh, no reason anybody can't find it. All right. So with that, I'd like to give one more special thanks to our sponsors, the Dramatist Guild Foundation, for all their assistance. It really is a lovely room. They're lovely people. And uh, my program, the University of Providence Theater and Business Arts Program. Hopefully you'll check it out. It's a pretty exciting program. All right. We will see you next time here at Bullet.